Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 2. We're going to continue to make our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, we're systematically making our way through this book, gleaning from it the principles that uh, God has given us in his word. Now, uh, I'm sure some of you, most of you, hopefully husbands in the room were aware that Wednesday was Valentine's Day. I was uh, at a prayer meeting Wednesday at 6.30 at Steve Dager's house, and some of the more adept guys in the room started praying for their wives. I think it was Stu Hickman who led the charge. Lord, I thank you so much for my 33 years of marriage to my wife, Jana. And then he went on to talk about what a great wife she was. Well, Paul Gage jumps in after that. Lord, I thank you for my 35 years of marriage to my wife, Lisa. And he waxes eloquent about Lisa. Not to be bested, Steve Dager, of course, (laughs) decides that he's going to let these young bucks know who is who. Lord, I thank you for my 43 years of marriage. And that's when Bob Kinsey comes in. Lord, I thank you for my 53 years of marriage. I'm sitting there thinking, boy, I don't dare to pray now. I felt like one of those freshman squirts on the varsity squad. Can I get your water for you? Do you need your seat warmed while you're away? And I'll tell you what I did do after that meeting. I went right to Trader Joe's and picked up a dozen roses. So, this morning as we turn to God's word, you're going to hear from the freshman member of the varsity squad on marriage, but thankfully I have the best playbook in the world to draw counsel from, and within this playbook there is timeless truth that involves everyone. Chuck Swindoll rightly said, God's word will help people of any age, any social status, in any life stage or circumstance, married, single, widowed, divorced, multiple divorced, abused, broken, terrorized, hurting, struggling, fighting for survival, prosperous, happy, healthy, joyful, guilty, grieving, or dying. I think he got everyone there. Because God's word applies to everyone seated in this room this morning. Now as we approach a a subject like marriage, the temptation is to spend all of our time in the doom and the gloom. I mean, a lot has happened in 60 to 70 years in our country with the institution of marriage. And just to name a few, we've changed our position as a country on same-sex marriage. We've gone through a time of no-fault divorce that continues today. We're starting to see people choosing to opt out of marriage altogether. It has undergone a serious assault, but I'm not interested in camping out on that this morning. Wouldn't you rather just hear a good old-fashioned love story? Everyone likes to turn on the Hallmark Channel, don't they? Uh, Everyone loves a good love story. Sometimes we spend so much time regretting the negative things we've seen happen to marriage that we forget about displaying the beautiful things that marriage could be. God made marriage to be one of his greatest gifts. He made it a blessing. 
And when you understand the ideal, when you live within the ideal, when you prize the ideal, then you start working towards experiencing the blessings of the ideal. So we're going to look at a love story. Genesis chapter 2, we pick up with verse 18. Verse 18 tells us that the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now let's stop right there. As you read that verse, I hope your brain kind of said, Stop. Something doesn't sound quite right here. If you've been making your way through Genesis 1, uh, God makes light. It is good. God creates stars and moon and sun. Good. Sea creatures. Good. Animals. Good. Humankind. Very good. Here we are, though, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and we come across it is not good. Pump the brakes. Hold up. What's going on here? What could possibly not be good in the perfect, all-powerful, all-wise God's good creation? Well, there are two major problems. First, God is not pleased with loneliness. I mean, think of this for a minute. You live in paradise. You have everything you want, uh, best food, best view, anything you can think of. You're walking in the garden with God, and yet, even in paradise, Adam is lonely. A second thing we see, God knows that Adam is incomplete without Eve. Now, there is a void in Adam that only Eve can fill. He doesn't need bros to go fishing with. He doesn't need women in general. He doesn't need one woman after another. He needs something very, very specific. Eve. He needed one woman given by God with whom he could spend the rest of his days with. You see, one of the primary principles and purposes of marriage is companionship. So essential for human flourishing, for societal flourishing. Now, as we move on in the text, we see uh, a description of what this woman would be. I've called my wife many endearing terms over the years. I've called her hun. I called her sweetheart. When I was in college, I used to call her piglet. (laughs) Trust me, that's one of those things you just had to be there to appreciate. But I have never once called my wife helper. I mean, can you imagine that? I'm in the mall and I yell 100 yards down the way, hey, helper, come here and take a look at this shirt with me. I think an angry mob might form if I did that. And yet, when we look at the text here, that's precisely how God describes Eve. She is to be Adam's helper to appreciate this word. I mean, you can't think of it as someone doing menial work while the, you know, the person with the capabilities is doing the real work or the important work. Helper in the Hebrew has the idea of supplying something crucial that is lacking. Most often in the Old Testament, the term is used of God, which means helper is anything but a demeaning term. God created Eve to do what Adam could not do by himself. And this points to another amazing principle about marriage, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. When Adam and Eve would come together, it wouldn't be like the equation 1 plus 1 equals 2. It'd be like the equation 1 plus 1 equals 37. This is synergy we're talking about here. I've experienced this in my marriage. Katie and I encourage one another. We cheer one another on. We accomplish heights together that we wouldn't have been able to accomplish otherwise 
separated from one another. And what is more, the more that you remain in marriage, the stronger and the longer it grows, the more you experience synergy. Verse 18 also tells us that Adam needed someone who is a fit. That literally means like opposite him or according to his opposite. You've heard the expression opposites attract. That's what we're talking about here. God in his creational design created one man and one woman to live together in monogamous marriage as corresponding counterparts, as matching opposites that complement one another. Now, as we move into the next verses, we see that Adam needs a little coaching before he's ready for Eve. Here he is. He's a brilliant guy, and, but he's lonely, right? And he's never seen a woman before. So he has no idea what God is about to do. So this is actually the first ever bachelor awareness program. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So as God lines up the animals, it's slowly dawning on Adam's capacious mind that there are certain general patterns that are occurring with the animals, okay? Remember, Adam in his pre-fall state is a brilliant guy. He's not a knucklehead or something like that, so he's watching male animal female animal. He's seeing elephant and duck and duckbill platypus. And they're walking by and he says to himself, these things are majestic, they're beautiful, and yet there's something missing here. I cannot relate to this because that animal was not made in the image of God. It did not bear the imago Dei. And so Adam would never be able to relate to one of them at the heart level. And so we see here the first case of heart sickness. Heart sickness isn't always a bad thing. How can you appreciate a gift unless you experience longing and need? How can you treasure the gravity of what is to come unless you first feel the void in your heart that says something is missing? I think of this for young people in the room or for those of you who are single and waiting to be married. God will prepare you for his greatest gift to you if you will let him lead your life. The best way to prepare yourself for your marriage is to wait to have sex until you say, I do. It is the best uh, to treat your heart as a precious treasure and to not give it out repeatedly to multiple participants. It's best to remain separate from the person that you're going to marry until that special day of marriage. I remember when Katie and I were engaged, we received all kinds of advice from people. Someone comes to us and says, hey, you know, you should really have sex before you get married. Why? Well, because you won't know if she's any good. As if that was all that marriage was about, sex. Or as if people have these different natural abilities within the realm of sex that other people don't. I mean, just bogus. Someone else comes up to us and says, well, you really got to live together to find if you can be married. Really? 
Because the statistics don't support that at all. In fact, generally speaking, it goes quite the opposite direction if you do. Someone else comes along, a more cynical mind says, well, make sure that you hide some money away and protect yourself. That's going to make a marriage work? If I hide money away and I don't trust her? I mean, just terrible advice. Essentially, every piece of advice saying, make sure that you take care of you. You don't trust them. They're no good. They're going to do something to harm you along the way. How in the world does that prepare anyone for a long, enduring, lasting marriage? You have to start out on the right foot if you want to end well. In June of 1971, just days before his 26-year-old son Michael got married, future U.S. President Ronald Reagan sent him this letter of advice. He said, Dear Mike, you've heard all the jokes that have been rousted around by all the unhappy marrieds and cynics. Now, in case no one has suggested it, there is another viewpoint. You have entered into the most meaningful relationship there is in all human life. It can be whatever you decide to make it. There are more men griping about marriage who kick the whole thing away themselves than there ever can be wives deserving of blame. There is an old law of physics that you can only get out of a thing as much as you put in it. The man who puts into the marriage only half of what he owns will get that out. It takes quite a man to remain attractive, and to be loved by a woman who has heard him snore, seen him unshaven, tended him while he is sick, and washed his dirty underwear. Do that, and keep her still feeling a warm glow, and you will know some very beautiful music. Mike, you know better than many what an unhappy home is and what it can do to others. Now you have a chance to make it come out the way it should. There is no greater happiness for a man than approaching a door at the end of a day knowing someone on the other side of the door is waiting for the sound of his footsteps. Love, Dad. P.S. You'll never get in trouble if you say, I love you, at least once a day. Much better advice, huh? Now, having diagnosed the problem, And taking Adam through this bachelor awareness program, we move on to see God perform a little life-giving surgery. So look with me at verses 21 and 22. The text tells us, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one rib and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, should we take this seriously? I mean, was Eve really made from a rib of Adam and some of his flesh? Yes, we should. But isn't that ludicrous? Why would you say such a thing? I mean, who who would believe a thing like that? Well, why would you think that way? I mean, if God created all of the universe with his spoken word, I mean, the trillions and trillions of stars that surround us in this galaxy, why do you have a problem with this? And here's another thought. Men, you do not have one less rib than women. Okay, just in case you were wondering that. The significance of these verses is profound. Note that Eve was made while Adam is asleep. And one 
other than supplying the raw materials, he has nothing to do with her creation. It's not as if Adam said to God, yes, God, I'd like her to be this height, this build, and give her green eyes and brown hair, and make sure not to skimp out on the sense of humor. No, he doesn't. And the same is true for the person that God prepares for each one of us. Your spouse comes to you as the person that God made them to be. They do not come custom designed according to your wants and desires and wishes. They come to you as they are. Don't try to change who they are. Learn who they are. Love who they are. And I think you'll find over time that you will be very glad that you didn't get who you wanted. I've found these to be helpful parameters when you're considering marriage. Ask these questions. Someone who knows Jesus and loves Jesus with the same passion and intensity as you do. Someone who has good character like you do. Someone who is wise like you are. Someone who has the same standard of commitment as you do. You see how important this checklist is? The first level of importance is that you can check those boxes. The second level of importance is that they can. If they can check the boxes, you've struck gold. Put all of those other things way lower down the list. Godly is so much more important than hobby. Let me paraphrase a, a passage, Proverbs eleven fourteen, that might help you as you think through this. Where there is no guidance, your love life will fail. But when you ask mature Christians who have been through the dating scene and have found someone godly, there is safety. Let's look now at verse 23. So here's God. He's bringing Eve to Adam. He's officiating the first wedding. You've heard of love at first sight. Some of you have experienced it. Others of you are like, nah, that that doesn't happen. Well, Adam believed in it. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew's emphatic here. It's like now, finally, at last. I mean, I've tried to picture this scene. Adam's waking up out of his sleep and and God's bringing this new creature around And he looks, and he's seen thousands of creatures, and he's uh, given them names according to what they're like. But this one looks at his hand, and he looks, and it's very similar. He notices that she's standing on two legs like he is. He looks at her face, and he remembers seeing his own reflection, and he looks, and he sees her. And yet, while there's many similarities, she is strikingly different, too. And he knows that he is going to love this woman as long as he shall live. Adam appreciated God's gift to him. She was perfect in every way. And God didn't need to change a thing. He didn't waste his time looking around to see if he could get a better deal. He treasured her. Proverbs 5.18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And ladies, in the husband of your youth. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a good wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, likewise ladies. 
What if we saw our spouse as a treasured gift from God? What if instead of running through the shortcomings list, we ran through the thanksgivings list? What if we said in our heart, you know, God, if this was your precious gift to me, there is no way that I could do better than this. Have you celebrated your spouse lately? Have you thanked God for him? Have you said, God, thank you for bringing him along? We would do well to do that. Well, this verse also reveals something about the husband and wife's roles in marriage. Look at the text. You notice that Adam names Eve. The Hebrew goes something like this. Adam named Eve Isha because she came from Ish. Eve is taken from Adam, not Adam from Eve. And here is a creational principle uh, that we might struggle with today, but I believe is found consistently throughout God's word. And it talks about the headship of the husband in the home. Paul makes this point in multiple places in the New Testament with regard to the home and the church. In 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, he outlines uh, male leadership with regard to eldership. In 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, same thing. Ephesians 5, 22 and uh, 33. This is a principle that you can trace from Genesis onwards into the New Testament. So it's not a cultural principle in Paul's day, to the people. It is a creational ordinance that we see in the text. Now, the Bible teaches a beautiful principle out of this that we call complementarianism. Complementarianism, by definition, God created men and women to teach complementary truths about Jesus. They are equal in dignity, value, essence, and human nature. Down to the very core of their being, right? But, distinct in role. So let's talk about this a little bit. What is the husband's role? He is accountable to God for leading, loving, and serving his wife as Christ did for the church. Kathy Keller writes in The Meaning of Marriage, to what role must the husband submit? To that of a savior, a servant leader, who uses his authority and power to express a love that doesn't even stop at dying for the beloved Now let's talk about what this doesn't mean for a minute. It's not a principle to give narcissistic, self-aggrandizing, lazy men the right to sit on the lazy boy chair, put down a six-pack of beer, and watch his wife slave away. Okay, we clear on that one? It's not a principle that says men are more qualified or more gifted than women are. Not true. I have found that Katie tends to be a lot more competent in areas than I am. It's not a principle that says, uh, that, uh, as far as I understand, that applies outside of the domain of the home or the church. So I don't see anywhere in the Bible that says a female can't be the head of state or the CEO of a company. And this principle also only applies to the husband-wife relationship, not to women in general, to men in general which gives us a wisdom principle to the ladies. You have to ask yourself when you're approaching marriage, would I be able to follow this guy? And if you say absolutely not, then don't marry him. Move on. You can check that box and leave it. Now men, we must take our responsibilities seriously. When God assigns leadership responsibility, he means 
business. In James 3, 2, it tells us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with far greater strictness. And I think that that principle applies to the home as well. Uh, When you look at the fall, who is held responsible ultimately for the fall? Here's a hint. It's not Eve. In Romans 5, it tells us that death came into the world through who? One man. Adam. Adam is the responsible agent for letting his leadership fail in the moment of the fall. He sits idly by and watches his home be destroyed. Men, we can't do that. We have to step up to the plate and lead the home. What is the wife's role? A wife fulfills her responsibilities as a helpmate by submitting to respecting and loving her husband as the church should to Christ. You see how it paints a picture of the gospel? Kathy Keller talks about some of the cultural tensions on ladies today. She says, sadly, those who most deny innate differences between men and women may end up devaluing women at the very point where they're trying to protect them. Women are asked to shed their feminine qualities and become faux men in order to be one of the boys. The strengths of gender-distinct leadership, creativity, and insight that women bring to the world, to name only a few, are lost today to the business world, to romantic relationships, and even ministry within the church. There's another problem I see, and I think it's an assault on women today. Listen to the empowered woman's job description. You must be educated, sophisticated, work out to have the perfect body, maintain an active and independent social life, uh, pursue a fulfilling full-time vocation, keep a Pinterest-perfect home. And by the way, you must be super mom, because if your kids are not perfect, then you're a failure. Anybody feel up to that job description? And what happens when we give in to that job description? Well, I think we go crazy. Matthew Henry made this fine observation of the Genesis text. He said, The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be his equal under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be his beloved. He adds, if man is the head, she is the crown, a crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined, one removed further from the earth. We do well to remember these things as we see them here in Genesis. And remember, When Genesis says something in a terse form, it has big implications as we move forward in the Bible and also in human society. Let's look at now our second point in verses 24 and 25. Covenant is the glue of marriage. Before we read that, though, let me just note this. Our goal in marriage is to be more like Mr. and Mrs. Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill was legendary for his wit. Very sharp wit, right at the right time in the right moment during the Second World War. 
However, he was even more legendary for his love of his wife, Clementine. It has been said that he was once asked the question, if you could live your life again, what would you want to be? And after 50 years of marriage, he said to the person with a twinkle in his eye, Mrs. Churchill's second husband. Mm -hmm. That's good stuff. I'm taking notes on that one. Isn't that the kind of love we romanticize? How does that sort of love come about? Well, God's word says that it comes about by honoring our covenant. Listen to verses 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Moses is using covenant language here. And elsewhere in the New Testament, this same verse is applied to the covenant of marriage. Covenant's the glue of marriage. Remember, a covenant is a binding agreement that sets up the relational parameters that protects the relationship. Love, at least love used in the way that we use it today, the standard is not the glue of marriage. Uh, covenant love is, but not the way we use it. I mean, let me just say this. Uh, if love is all about sentimental, warm, gushy feelings, I mean, I wake up like a bear some mornings, and, and Katie probably doesn't have warm fuzzies towards me. I bet you there's plenty of times where Katie looks at me and thinks to herself, boy, he's not easy to love, but I'm going to choose to do it today. That's what covenant love is. Covenant love is what holds marriage together, what sustains it. So what should this covenant love entail? Well, four things. It begins with allegiance. So notice it says there, a man leaves his father and his mother. Oh, it doesn't mean that you stop talking to your parents. I've seen people isolate themselves from their family. Uh, the Ten Commandments still apply. You need to honor your father and your mother. Your parents should be a central part of your life. But here's the main thing. They shouldn't be the center of your life. Your husband or your wife becomes that when you are married to them. And that includes your children. Permanence. Hold fast to your wife literally means to be glued to one another. And you know what that means? It means that you're stuck. <laughs> you're stuck to this person. You're stuck with this person. Now, I know when you hear that, you're thinking, boy, that doesn't sound very appealing at all. Well, it's a glorious thing. It brings security into a household when two people say, we're stuck together through sickness health, richer, poorer, good times, bad times, arguments, selfishness, security. And one of the greatest gifts you could give your children is to say we're stuck together. I remember talking to a young man and uh, he was processing marriage on the phone and he mentioned that he and his fiance were arguing a lot. It wasn't going well and he said, I'm afraid that if I go through with this marriage, it won't last so I spelled it out for him, and let's just call him, I don't know, Tim Tebow. I said, listen, Tim, after you say I do to her, that is it. She is your wife for life. Uh, you need to think of this relationship now after marriage like she's your mom or your brother or your dad or your sister. This thing doesn't end, right? 
They're always supposed to be a part of your life. If, if you have an argument with your dad, he's still going to be your dad. He should be. That's what hold fast means. Don't unglue. What happens when we unglue? It's like tearing flesh apart. I know when we bring up the D word that it immediately sends some of us into a tailspin. Divorce has caused a lot of pain in many homes across America, and this is why God hates divorce. Now, when I say God hates divorce, don't hear God hates you if you've gone through divorce. God loves you. Some of us have been carrying the burden of divorce with us for many years. We have felt that because we've done this and the the word of God says you shouldn't, that it's some kind of unforgivable sin. Uh, Can God forgive me? I don't even know if I forgive me. Well, let me just make a very clear statement here. If you have asked for forgiveness from God by the blood of Jesus, guess what? You're forgiven. End of story. That's the truth out of the scriptures. No more buts. No more what ifs. Trust the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But to my friends who are presently fighting for their marriage, keep fighting. Marriage is a everyday fight. The grass is not greener on the other side. Keep going after it. Unity. And they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh has several layers of meaning. At its deepest level, it describes the joy and fulfillment found in the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, in a monogamous marriage. Sexual intercourse is a deeply uniting act. It is spiritual, it is physical, it is emotional. That must not take place outside of the marriage covenant. It shouldn't happen casually between strangers. It shouldn't even happen in committed relationships. It shouldn't happen between uh, members of the same sex. It shouldn't happen when you're married to someone and you go outside of your marriage. Hebrews 13.4 makes this clear. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now this is a message to the church. It's what Hebrews is written to. It's not written to the outside world. It's written to us. He's saying don't hit a foul here. Be careful here. If you want your Christian testimony to be distinct, you've got to get this one right. That's why Christians need to make a big deal about the wedding ceremony. I mean, friends and neighbors and loved ones, when they they come into the church and they see her leaving from that home and him leaving from that home and then they get into this aisle and they're standing together and then they leave the wedding ceremony and they go to the same house, and they're starting to ask the question, why? And the Christian couple should say, because right here before God, we made vows to him and to one another. Don't hear this, though, and think, well, too late for me. This message isn't for me. I've already fouled out in this area. 
I'm not talking, I can't preach to you 15 or 20 years ago. I, I can't have that conversation. I'm talking to you today. Walk with God. Let Him lead your life. But what about my past? Well, that's why grace is amazing. God takes our messy pasts and works out beautiful presents and futures as we surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, intimacy. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the promised land in marriage, church. Intimacy is the joy of knowing someone fully and being fully known by that person without fear of rejection. This is what you want to get to in marriage. Sex is not the promised land. It does not equal intimacy. Intimacy leads to sex. Sex by itself does not tend to lead to intimacy. In fact, it can destroy intimacy. So how do we get this great sex life that everyone's talking about? Well, in a monogamous marriage, as we pursue intimacy. What destroys intimacy? Well, sin does. Hurtful words, angry outbursts, holding on to bitterness, winning the argument at the expense of the other, competing with my spouse instead of working together with her destroys intimacy. Intimacy comes about by being vulnerable, trusting, living your life together. It involves sharing every aspect of your life together. Share the bank account. Share your passwords. Share your plans. Share your vision for the home. Share your inner world. Share your time. Don't leave something off the table. That destroys intimacy. Well, as we close, I do want to tell you one more love story. It's about a girl who fell in love with a guy. It's about my mom. Mom grew up for a significant portion of her childhood without a father. When she was just 11 years old, her dad passed away in a rather uh, tragic manner, and that tragedy had disrupted their home. But thank God there was a superhero named Lily Mae White, my grandma, raised three children in her home, uh, worked a, a low-income job, sent all of those kids off to college, and saw them through college. When mom came off to college, she didn't know Christ as her savior. She remembers hearing a knock on her dorm room door one day. Two girls are standing there. They're introducing themselves. They're asking, hey, would you like to come with us to a campus ministry program? At that time, it was called Campus Crusade for Christ. And, and mom says, sure, I'll, I'll come along with you. It was there that she was introduced to Jesus, the precious son of God who laid down his life for her sins. She knew that she was a sinner and that she had found forgiveness in this Savior. She also met this happy-go-lucky jokester named Rob Wheeler. He was a bit of an odd duck. He had an odd sense of humor, loved pranks. But he also had this deep, committed passion to follow Jesus, and he treated her like a lady. As their dating relationship progressed, my dad felt compelled to propose marriage to my mom. I'll spare you the gory details, but that didn't go so well. Let's just say flatulence was involved, and that's all you need to know. Mom said no. She didn't know if she loved him. She wasn't ready. 
And so he said, well, if you don't view me in that way, well, then we need to go our separate ways. And so they did. Over the course of a summer, Mom began to miss that crazy yet charming Rob Wheeler. With time and space, she began to realize that he was exactly the kind of man that she would want to marry. He loved her. He loved Christ. He was faithful and he had integrity. And so at the end of the summer, she invited him out for a walk and she expressed her love to him. And well, I got to tell you, the rest is history. They covenanted their lives together and raised three boys who they poured their love upon. And I cannot even begin to tell you that precious gift that I received as a child to grow up in a home where mom and dad loved Jesus, loved one another, and never once said the word divorce in my presence. My dad looked me in the eyes as a boy and he said, I will never, ever leave your mother. She is the most precious woman in the world to me. And I knew he meant it. I watched him treat her like a queen. And I also watched her respect him like he was the only man that mattered. Friends, this is Christian marriage. This is the beautiful gift that God has given us. And I say this to you because I want to see this for the church of Jesus Christ. I want to see it for my kids. And I want to see it for you. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?